Welcome to another episode of Cross-Section, the unofficial podcast for members of the Section on Neonatal Perinatal Medicine of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Neonatal Section represents more than 4,000 neonatologists and clinicians who are committed to caring for the nation's smallest and most vulnerable patients. In Cross-Section, we hear firsthand from some of those individuals about their work. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals featured and do not necessarily reflect the policies of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Hi everyone, I'm John Zapanzik and I'll be hosting today's episode of Cross-Section. Today we present a roundtable on advocacy. The section has long recognized that in, in addition to doing our job as neonatologists, one baby at a time, we have the opportunity to share our expertise and insights to impact the systems that care for babies and their families on a broader scale. So what are the unique ways that neonatologists can have an impact as advocates? How are our voices different from those of general pediatricians or, or sub, other subspecialists? And what are the current priorities in which we can and, and must engage on behalf of our patients and families? We are just thrilled to welcome today some of the AAP's most committed, passionate, and expert advocates for newborns. To start off, we have two individuals in particular who are helping to drive the AAP's efforts for these patients and, and for pediatric care. Um, James Baumberger is the Senior Director of Federal Advocacy for the American Academy of Pediatrics. And Patrick Johnson is, the director, is a Director for Federal Affairs of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, welcome, uh, Pat and, and James. From the section itself, cross-section um, brings back three of our own who have been on this uh, podcast several times before. Three of our own uh, most effective leaders. Lily Liu has just started her term as chair of the section. She is professor of clinical pediatrics and director of government relations at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Shettle Shaw is a clinical professor of pediatrics and neonatology at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital at New York Medical College. He has also served as the president of chapter two of the AAP in New York as the chair of the Society for Pediatric Research Advocacy Committee, and as the co-chair, along with Lily Liu, of our own advocacy subcommittee within the section. Shettle, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. And, and Ashley uh, Luck is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Texas at Austin, and has served as the chair of the Trainees and Early Career Neonatologist uh, uh, group, where she was very effective in launching advocacy as a major thrust of what that group does. Uh, welcome back, Ashley. Thank you, John. And for everyone listening, do not worry, Dr. Zapanzik is indeed wearing a bow tie. <laughs> We'll, we'll post this, I'm sure Shuttle will post the pictures of all of us on, on there. Um, good, so uh, James, I'm gonna start with, with you. This is, a, uh, I think for pediatricians, this is an exciting time as is every transition um, to a new administration. So as, as a new presidential administration takes over next month, what would you say are the biggest opportunities to advance neonatal health and practice? And, and, and which of those are, are politically achievable, say in the first, 100 days or, or, or in 2021? Sure. And thanks for that question, Dr. Zvancic. Uh Yeah. yeah and, and I'll start just by taking a high-level overview of, of, of AAP's work on the presidential transition. Uh, we have put out a transition plan. It's called Transition Plan Advancing Child Health in the Biden-Harris Administration. Uh, you can find it online at aap.org slash transition. 
Uh, we put this out uh, shortly after uh, media organizations called the, the race for president-elect uh, Biden um, and uh, shared our transition plan with AP members and, and also with uh, the president-elect's uh, transition team. Uh, it's really comprehensive. There are uh, 150 different recommendations in, in 27 different uh, issue areas. It's focused uh, on things that the administration can do administratively, the, uh, as in the executive branch. Uh, uh, so it's not necessarily encompassing everything, including our legislative priorities that we need Congress to work on, uh, but uh, certainly deals with a number of really important issues for uh, neonates, infants, children, um, adolescents, young adults, et cetera, and pediatricians, pediatric specialists, of course. Um, so uh, I I'll, talk about a few of those um, uh, that are really high priority items. Of course, um, for it, you know, every child, whether, um, uh, whether one day old or, uh, or 18 years old, you know, increasing health coverage for children is really important, especially because we've seen uh, backsliding in the numbers of, of children who uh, have health insurance in the last few years. So that there's a lot the admi new administration can do to facilitate enrollment. A lot of the children uh, who are uninsured are actually eligible for uh, public programs like Medicaid or CHIP, but not enrolled. Uh, so we need to redouble our efforts to make sure all children are enrolled. Uh, there's work that we can do to strengthen the Medicaid program. And some of this will involve needing to rescind some of the damaging uh, state Medicaid waivers that were approved uh, under the current administration. Uh, that would uh, limit coverage under the program in a number of ways, including adding work requirements, um, uh, uh, um, uh, instituting block grants or per capita caps, um, uh, even some uh, that had been approved previously that would limit um, uh, the EPSDP standard for, for children. Um, so, so there's a lot of work we can do there. Um, we need to ensure that this the new administration uh, insurance coverage for children, regardless of immigration status, that's obviously crucial. Um, improving Medicaid payment, we need to recognize that Medicaid payment is a really important piece of the access puzzle for children. Uh, Med Medicaid providers continue to be paid about 70 cents on the dollar compared to, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, providers in the Medicare program, and it's just not um, not acceptable that we continue to undervalue um, the health of children in, in the United States. We need to continue to make sure that um, uh, insurance networks are, are not overly narrow. Um, that is a particularly of concern for access to pediatric subspecialists. And we need to keep defending the, the Affordable Care Act. So there's clearly a, a lot to do in the, um, in, in the realm of, of access to care for children. And I'll just mention a couple other uh, important issues in terms of the pediatric workforce. Uh, we need to um, uh, encourage this new administration to put funding in its budget for uh, pediatric subspecialty loan repayment. Uh, we need to uh, eliminate some of the restrictions put into place by the current administration uh, on foreign national positions, um, uh, including their training and practice here in the United States. Uh, those are obviously uh, crucial policies to, to take care of. Um, in terms of child welfare, uh, we're encouraging the Biden administration to support comprehensive implementation of the Family First Preventive uh, Service, Prevention Services Act. Um, this is designed to reduce unnecessary foster care placements by funding 
prevention services like uh, family substance use treatment. So this is really a crit critical paradigm shift for states um, in their child welfare uh, programs. Uh, we can use federal funding to help now try to keep uh, children out of foster care uh, altogether rather than funding to put uh, children into foster care. And so this is obviously crucial um, and is crucial uh, when we're talking about um, uh, neonates born with, um, uh, with uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome, uh, born mm -hmm. to, to, to mothers who've, um, who uh, have been using opioids. That's really uh, uh, crucial to ensure that we're providing these families the necessary supports. Lastly, I'll just mention uh, injury prevention. We need to encourage the Consumer Product Safety Commission to to uh, finalize strong safety standards for infant sleep products, including uh, the inclined sleepers that have been linked to a number of infant deaths. Um, continue our work to remove padded crib bumpers from the market. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, neonatal drugs for neonates, uh, we uh, have much more work to do uh, with the Food and Drug Administration to ensure that drugs are, are appropriately studied in neonates. Um, we have made a lot of success in improving the study of drugs in kids under the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act and the Pediatric Research Equity Act. Um, uh, together, they've, they've resulted in almost 800 drug labels changed with new pediatric information. But unfortunately, not enough of that has translated down to the uh, youngest children. And so uh, we need to re redouble our efforts to not only uh, encourage drug studies in, in neonates, uh, but also uh, additional studies um, in pregnant and lactating women. So there's clearly a lot on our agenda. That's just a small piece uh, of what we'll be working on in the first 100 days of the new administration. Uh, but we look forward to, um, uh, to uh, trying to push all these advocacy priorities for children forward. Well, that, that's just terrific. Uh, that, that's quite a um, menu. And, and in the first 100 days, I think that would be about one day for, for each of them. Um, more, more seriously, we, we have uh, 4,000 members in the section. There are, I think, 65 or 66,000 pediatricians in the AAP. Um, what is the process by which we coordinate that voice on so many issues so that so that at any given time we our, our message is getting through and and isn't scattered amongst many equally important um, uh, problems yeah well you probably heard our, our CEO Mark Del Monte say stay in the boat when it comes to advocacy when there are choppy waters we all need to um, be rowing in the same direction and so that's obviously crucial um, but we have lots of members of the academy who have really interesting perspectives that they can bring to their advocacy work. Um, and that's certainly true for, for neonatologists. Uh, you know, in, in addition to the heroic work you do every single day uh, in your day jobs, uh, you really have an important role to play in, in advocacy as well. Um, there's no substitute for policymakers hearing uh, directly from physicians. Um, uh, particularly about their, their, their tiniest and most vulnerable constituents. Um, and so uh, policymakers like hearing stories, it, it brings issues home for them. And you all can tell stories about the, the, uh, the, the neonates that you care for um, uh, on a daily basis and how their health is really impacted on so many levels by, um, by public policy. So you have a, a unique perspective on uh, the first few, few days and weeks of a child's life and how important that, that foundation becomes for a, few, a child's future development. 
Uh, so we really encourage uh, neonatologists to get involved in advocacy. Uh, I think you'll, you'll hear more from, um, uh, from others about uh, some of the advocacy infrastructure within the section, but uh, at the AAP Washington office, um, we're always uh, happy to uh, work with, um, with anybody who's interested in, in pursuing their advocacy goals, including the section. Um, make sure that you're uh, signed up for our, um, uh, for our advocacy email list, which you can do on AAP's advocacy website. Want to make sure we have um, have you signed up so we can send you updates and and let you know critical times where it's really important uh, to contact your members of Congress about uh, important legislation and 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 other important advocacy um, priorities. Can I add something? The AAP is fantastic at coordinating the voices of pediatricians in activities like the Days of Action. In fact, they've had subspecialty days of action where they can focus members of Congress's attention on one particular issue to hear lots of messages on the same day. I'd also put in a plug to talk a little bit about the legislative conference. Um, for the people who are on the panel, most of us have been or got our start in advocacy by attending the legislative conference. And I think the Academy has been really receptive to the fact that sometimes the issues that are of major importance to primary care pediatricians are sometimes a little different than those that are of major importance to subspecialists which is why the legislative conference which i believe now is is actually formally called the advocacy conference uh, does provide a subspecialty track um, and that i think is a really great way for people who are interested in advocacy to kind of dip their toe in the water and get an idea about whether this is something uh, they want to pursue as part of their academic work. I can add a, a few details there about the the advocacy conference, um, which which yes, we we just renamed. It's been a legislative conference since its inception, but uh, we changed the the name of the conference to reflect really the the broad advocacy curriculum that we focus on during that conference. Uh, it, it'll be coming up next year, April eleventh uh, through thirteenth. Um, uh, registration is not yet open, um, so save the date at this point, but registration should open early next year. The, um, the conference this year will be all virtual, um, so we are adapting to the virtual environment uh, uh, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So um, uh, AP members who attend the conference will be uh, meeting with their uh, legislative uh, officials via um, electronic communication by video conference. Uh, so we're adapting to this new um, new reality. Um, but we're going to put on a great conference. We're going to have subspecialty specific um, uh, curriculum uh, for sure and uh, would encourage section members uh, to come if they can. You know, I'm really excited about the fact that advocacy, the advocacy conference is going to be virtual. I'm thinking about all the fellows and the residents or the early career neos out there who really need that conference because I think a lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome where we don't feel like we know enough or we're just sort of getting our toes wet. And the advocacy conference was a wonderful way to get a good background as well as just to get that training. And with the amount of call that a fellow has to take or early career neos not being able to get, you know, that travel time, I'm really excited because I think this is gonna be a great way for a lot of us TCAN members 
or, you know, maybe you're not a TCAN member anymore, but you just haven't really gotten into that advocacy pool yet to really get a sense of what the issues are. And I'm so glad that we're talking about them, but really just wanted to endorse the fact that if you're listening and you really don't have a good feel for appropriations and the process or, you know, these, these things that sound so fancy, it's really easy to get involved and thanks so much to our section leaders, but people like Pat and James who really break it down and help us, you know, realize that we already are the expert on the issue. Just by being a doctor and having our stories, we have something to add. So if you're worried about the technical aspects of it, I think listening to some of the things that we're going to bring up in the next, you know, few minutes here will, will help add to the knowledge, but don't hesitate to reach out. And I do endorse the advocacy conference as a great opportunity to learn. So I just want to mention that the, uh, in the last three or four years, We've had 12 to 14 neonatologists attend um, LegCon, which is now the advocacy conference. And we have made a commitment in the section to support members learning um, how to hone their advocacy skills. So we have committed to scholarships to the legislative or advocacy conference. And uh, last year we offered six scholarships, but we were not able to attend because of the pandemic. So we um, are just discussing now how to uh, support people to attend the virtual conference. I remember the first time that I went to what was called LegCon. It, it was not only the idea of that we were uh, gaining skills and knowledge about the advocacy universe, but also the, the epiphany that your elected representatives are actually accessible to you. I, I, that was really important. There's an afternoon where you, you meet with your congressional delegation or, or representatives. And um, I, I, I think that as, as Lily said, is in, inspiring and, and it gives you a concrete uh, way forward, I think, through this. It's not just abstract, um, wonky information about the next legislative initiative. Uh, you, your voice is important. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about about that legislative process. We can't do much uh, with, without money in, in this, uh, in any system. And, and in fact, the, a topic of a previous cross-section podcast was about the role of the census in determining who gets um, that money. So one of the biggest issues for this new Congress and the, the new president will be to tackle appropriations. Pat, what, what are the major programs that are of importance to neonatologists that will be poised for a potential increase in funding and, and which are at, at risk, which are on the chopping block? Yeah, thanks for that question. And it's actually, we've been all of about 15 hours since we passed the uh, fiscal year uh, 21 appropriations to fund the rest of the, uh, the, uh, mm. the fiscal year. So um, okay. I think going forward, uh, you know, in terms of some of the issues that um, um, there's an opportunity to you know, raise our voice and advocate for and, and push along. I think obviously one that's, you know, James already mentioned earlier was the, you know, the pediatric subspecialty loan repayment program. Now that that's been reauthorized, um, there's a good opportunity to um, get that funded and going forward. Um, there's obviously going to be continued needs in the areas of the COVID-19 um, response, um, whether it is continued um, need for equipment or supplies or PPE or research um, uh, on, um, you know, uh, 
how how um, it works in, in, in mothers and infants and, and everything like that. Um, there's obviously maternal and child health programs. Um, there's Title V. Um, uh, we're looking to keep uh, funding for the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act. Um, you know, obviously WIC breastfeeding uh, uh, <clears throat> and breastfeeding um, peer counselors. So, so there's lots of different areas. In, in terms of you know what um, is prime for a booster, what is prime for a cut? Uh, I just want to take a step back and talk about what the environment is going to look like next year because it's going to be different than the last 10 years. So uh, as a refresher, for the past 10 years, the appropriations process has been guided by the Budget Control Act of 2011. And that put in budget caps each year for both the defense portion of the bill and the non-defense discretionary spending. So for the past 10 years, there have been caps that the appropriators have had to work with in terms of how much money they had overall and how much money they had in each individual uh, appropriation bill. Um, some years they were able to make an agreement where they raised the cap on both sides. Um, they did that more years than that, but they still had a hard cap that they had to work by. So the fiscal year 2022 is the first year in a decade without that. So we're not quite sure how, what that's gonna mean going forward in terms of um, will they really take advantage of that and really increase the, uh, the, um, the spending amounts and the bills? And if that's so, then that obviously opens up areas for more funding for programs that are important to, uh, to children and moms uh, and, um, and programs that AAP has supported um, over the years. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, we obviously have a new administration. Um, a lot, I think, is going to depend on in terms of what we see in terms of um, differences between the House and the Senate um, bill is obviously the, the Senate election rate, the runoffs in Georgia. If the Democrats can win both of those, then you will have a Democratic chair of the House uh, or the Senate Appropriations Committee. And that will probably be more in line with the House um, uh, Appropriations Committee, which will be Democrat one also. If, if um, the Republicans win both or one, um, then that will keep the Republican um, chairman in the Senate. Um, and it was most likely be, there'll probably be a much greater difference between the two bills um, that you would have to iron out. Um, a couple of things with that is that we also have a new appropriations chair in um, the House in Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut. And she has been a absolute champion for children over the years. She has prioritized many of the areas that uh, we have priorities as well uh, across the gamut from um, you know, WIC and breastfeeding, peer counseling, tobacco and e-cigarettes, all sorts of different issues. Um, so I think she'll be very good to work with in terms of um, you know, champion, or getting some of our priorities, maybe more of a feature than they have been in the past. And then finally, I just want to mention that uh, one of the new members of the Appropriations Committee um, is a very uh, fast up-and-comer in the House, Representative Lauren Underwood, who has been a really big champion um, from the maternal health portion of it. So it's not determined yet which subcommittee she's going to get on, but if she does get on the Labor H bill, I think that is an opportunity to have another champion in there and work with her and others to promote um, uh, programs that are important.
That's that's exciting, and and I, I probably some something that uh, you uh, t- taught me when uh, the the two of you when I was uh, chair, and that I've I've seen evidence of many times since is is that the the AP has been really effective at at working on its policies regardless of of who is uh, who, who has the majority in either the House or the or the Senate. And, and so, although obviously the particular priorities that we, as the, um, the AP pitches, have to sort of be matched to the, to the leadership and to the election, um, I, I, I think that even if that election were to go uh, you know, one way or the other in Georgia, that the AAP would, would continue that, that work. Um, any comments on that? We, we like to say that AAP um, is uh, not a partisan organization, but unabashedly pro-children. And so uh, we will work with anybody um, and, and everybody who's w- willing to fight for policies that uh, benefit kids. Um, and so uh, regardless of what the Congress looks like coming up, um, you know, regardless of whether the Senate does have a narrow Democratic majority or a narrow Republican majority, either way, we're going to be working on pretty thin margins. And so uh, we're not in a situation where one party is going to be able to uh, legislate at will. So there's going to need to be bipartisanship um, continued into next year. And so we'll be working across both sides of the aisle to make that happen for kids. John, I wanted to insert something. One of One of the basic principles of advocacy that I had to learn when I was first getting interested in it is that um, authorization and appropriations are very separate. You know, authorization is like saying, hey, let's decide as a family that we're going to go to Australia on vacation. And appropriations is saving the money to be able to do it. So one of the things that's really helpful is to get in your mind that there may be two separate pushes, one for authorizing a good idea and the other for authorizing the dollars that can make it happen. Yeah, I also want to say uh, something because I think this is important when it comes to advocacy and that one of the, you know, James had talked earlier about how one of the things that we can do as physicians is give a voice to how policies actually impact babies and their care. And I think that that's even more true for things like appropriations. And I say that, and, and Pat and James might correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the congressional staff people um, have told me that sometimes they're looking at all of these programs and they're, they're almost lines on a spreadsheet. And for us to be able to say, look, I counsel mothers about newborn screening results. That's the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act appropriation. I administer surfactants. I would, I provide care for babies in the Medicaid program. I have a grant that I'm deciding to put into NICHD or heart lung blood. Well, that's NIH appropriation. Um, I have a program that I'm thinking about using the wonder database for that's CDC appropriation, right? There's so much that we do in neonatology that is directly impacted by the appropriations process. And it's really important for us to talk about the moms who get referred to WIC, to talk about the moms who go to WIC and then wind up providing breast milk for their babies who don't get NEC um, and how devastating NEC can be. 
And if we don't give a voice to those programs, oftentimes no one will. Because if you are in a, a, a congressional office, how many people are lining, you know, are, are lining up at the door to talk about um, appropriations for the National Center for, for Congenital Birth Defects or something like that, um, or congenital malformations, right? It's really only us who's articulating the need for those programs. And Shettle, not only, uh, not only telling our stories, the research that we want to do, the databases that we want to use, we can be a conduit for baby and family stories that can be immensely powerful on the floor of Congress. Yeah, just as a former Hill staffer, I'll just reiterate, you're inundated with meetings all day as a staffer. Um, and a lot of times the numbers do kind of blur. Um, and it's, as James mentioned, it's the stories that penetrate and make it through to that staff who then recommends <laughs> to um, either the congressman or the senator that, you know, you really should include this in your request to the Appropriations Committee. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the, the, the um, as being the expert voice, and as, as you mentioned, Shettle, you touch so many different policies and programs in your everyday life, and you may not think about that at the time that you're doing it. Um, but any stories that you can share about how, you know, someone in your practice or um, that you saw last week or whatever it is, has been affected by a program or benefited by it and why we need this or why we need to support it, that cuts through. I, I can still remember, you know, three or four stories that I was just floored by when I was a, a Hill staffer um, that we actually, I was able to actually convince the senator to include that um, in his, uh, in his um, request, just based on the information I got from that person that day. Kat, you just brought up a really important issue. Um, I think, you know, when you think of doing your Hill visits, you want to get a picture of yourself with your senator or your representative, but truly the most productive relationships are with the health staffers. So um, I would never discount the importance of getting to know the staffers of your members of Congress. James, I uh, mentioned at the top that a really critical focus in in the coming year is going to be on ensuring access and, and adequacy of, of health coverage. Shettle, you you and the Advocacy Committee have been uh, working on behalf of the section closely with the, the National AP to advance the MOMS Act, um, which would allow states to extend Medicaid coverage to postpartum moms for up to a year. Why is this an issue for neonatologists uh, other than the obvious clinical one? And what do we know about the potential impact for our babies in the NICU? Sure, I think that this is a real prime example of an advocacy issue where the neonatal voice is really essential because in so much as we really closely partner and sometimes even feel more um, more of a kindred spirit with our obstetric colleagues than sometimes we do with, say, our adolescent medicine colleagues. Um, we really have the opportunity to, to give a voice to this, to this issue. So the first point to remember is just how important Medicaid is as a program. And one of the things that, that John and, and Lily and Ashley uh, and I have talked about extensively is that for many neonatologists, um, most of them, I would argue, really don't fully understand just how important Medicaid is 
in terms of providing health insurance and payment for the work that we do. People need to remember that 50% of babies are born in the Medicaid program, but 60 to 70% of VLBW babies are born in the Medicaid program. So anything um, that impacts Medicaid has the ability to directly or indirectly impact the work we do. Um, and certainly anything that impacts the health of mothers will directly impact the babies that we're going to take care of. So, um, and James and Pat, please correct me if I get any of these facts wrong. Um, you know, currently in the Medicaid program, states offer postpartum coverage to those mothers for approximately 60 days. And the MOMS Act would extend that coverage period to up to a year. And that's important for a couple of reasons. We know that after that 60 days, when Medicaid expires as the mother's insurance program, we tend to see a cycling, what we call churning in and out of health insurance coverage. And we know for moms, particularly those moms with chronic disease, specifically hypertension, diabetes, and thyroid disease, they wind up not getting the best chronic disease management. And it's important for us to, to recognize that when moms present to care during pregnancy, many times, you know, they're getting all of those visits uh, during the prenatal period. That's the time when a lot of these chronic diseases actually get uncovered for the first time. Um, that's when moms realize that they have hypertension or that's when they fail their glucose tolerance test and realize they could be diabetic. Or that's when they realize that they might have underlying thyroid disease. So it's important for us to make sure that those moms wind up getting continuous care. And that starts with continuous insurance coverage so that we can make sure that they have better chronic disease management. Now, as a neonatologist, we're always going to say, what about the baby? Um, and that, of course, is extremely important. And there is a lot of data to suggest that if you have chronic um, or constant access to insurance coverage as a, as a postpartum mother, um, you actually wind up delivering a healthy baby subsequently. And that's because the interpregnancy interval, right, the time period between the mom who delivered and the potential subsequent child um, is usually longer because of consistent access to contraceptive services and family planning services. And we know that if that interpregnancy interval is too short, particularly um, around six months or so, so, there's increased risk of spontaneous preterm birth stillbirth and infant mortality in that first year. So that's the point that I think we as neonatologists need to articulate because when people are looking at how much this is going to cost, um, they're really only thinking about how much it costs to cover these mothers and how much they might save in terms of healthcare costs for these mothers. It's really only neonatologists who are talking about the subsequent potential pregnancy. Now, the section has done a lot of work um, in terms of working with national AAP and making sure that that piece um, of the puzzle doesn't get lost um, as the legislation sort of makes its way uh, across, uh, across Capitol Hill. And of course, even now with COVID really drawing attention to health disparities, one of the biggest health disparities we have is maternal mortality, right? The United States is among the worst of industrialized countries when it comes to maternal mortality. And we know that about 10% of mothers who die in the postpartum period die after their Medicaid coverage would have been that 43 to 60 days expires. So there's also the ability to 
to actually potentially save lives, not just improve chronic disease. Mm -hmm. James and Pat, thoughts on on moms? Sure. It's it's a crucially important uh, policy that we'll need to keep pushing. Um, unfortunately, uh, the 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 policy was not included in um, the final uh, year-end package that Congress passed yesterday, uh, despite our our efforts. So it means that we'll need to continue working uh, next year in the next Congress to ensure that all states have the option to expand. Uh, Medicaid coverage for for postpartum mothers up to 12 months after birth. Um, it's a really really crucial uh, policy that that we need to keep working on. Can I ask James a follow up question? So the Moms Act is federal, but a lot of Medicaid policy is made at the state level. Can you talk about how um, the federal and state advocacy issues intercalate? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, uh, the Medicaid program is a federal state partnership. So um, there's a law at the federal level that governs uh, how the Medicaid pro program operates at a high level, but each state runs their own Medicaid program. Matching money comes from, from the federal government to the states to help uh, pay for uh, their Medicaid programs. Uh, but states have a, a great uh, ability to, uh, to change how their Medicaid program works through what are called waivers, which are designed to uh, be able to allow states to innovate and improve care in, in, in their own Medicaid programs. Those waivers um, need to be approved by the federal government. So there is an opportunity, for instance, to uh, ensure that um, uh, the waivers that states are working on uh, will actually increase uh, access to care. And one, uh, there are a few states who that are currently working uh, on, have currently proposed waivers that would uh, expand postpartum coverage for up to 12 months for mothers. Um, so that can be done through the waiver authority. This legislation uh, would make it easier for states to do that. But there's still a lot that states can do uh, to, to improve their programs. And, and we need the Biden administration to encourage states to uh, pursue waivers in a way that will increase and not decrease access to care. Can you comment on AAP support for our members who are engaged in state level advocacy? Um, we've been talking a lot about federal advocacy, obviously, but what, what resources are there at, this, at the state level or the regional level? Absolutely. So, so Pat and I have a number of wonderful colleagues who work on our state advocacy team. Uh, who help our chapters in every state and, and multiple chapters in New York and California, uh, help them engage their uh, state Medicaid programs. It's really crucial to not only for us to be doing advocacy on a federal level, but also to be engaging with Medicaid directors and secretaries of health and governors uh, on the state level as well. So our state advocacy team provides our chapters uh, with um, uh, guidance and and uh, and resources for them to be able to do that advocacy on the state level, um, and uh, for for those who are interested, uh, you can reach out to your own chapters, um, and and chapters can um, can reach out to us for assistance. So I I, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and and make sure that we that we think about those those workforce issues that came that were raised at the at the top. 
um, the, the women in neonatology group in, in the section has adopted paid family leave as an advocacy issue. And it, it's focusing on its ability not only to help the um, patients and their new moms, but also to support early career neonatologists who tend to have children you know, er, early in their uh, careers. Uh, well, what are the prospects of implementing paid family leave and, and medical leave universally after birth? At, at the federal level, um, Pat? It's gonna be, be a tough um, row ahead. Uh, just, um, you know, it's been out there for a while. I think the, the incoming administration is probably, probably a little more friendlier to uh, that concept um, uh, than the past one. But, you know, AAP has uh, supported paid family and medical leave uh, for a while. Uh, we'll continue to do so. Um, it, you know, it's a lot of it's just going to come down to how are you going to finance it, how do you pay for it, um, and, and everything like that. So, it uh, I think though, you know, as more and more groups and organizations and whatnot join this effort, I think that will make it easier. Um, and so, the more voices we can add to um, those of us who have already been there, or more organizations who make it. A higher priority uh, than they have in the past can help, but um, it'll kind of it'll take a all, all hands on deck kind of effort, and really, um, uh, it'll it'll be um, um, it'll it'll be a good fight. I have a question for Pat, though. Appreciating the difficulty that comes with the price tag of something that is as important as and and universally implementable as paid family leave. Has the, has the hill to climb gotten steeper because of the financial situation that the federal government finds itself in? Or has it gotten a little less steep simply because COVID has really brought attention to how important paid family leave is because we have many healthcare workers who could not go into work because their family leave situations were, um, were not available to them. And we actually had potential shortages of nursing and physician workforce issues at the onset of the pandemic while everyone was trying to negotiate childcare? Um, yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a little of both. Um, you, you're going to have um, uh, some people who are going to be very wary of large ticket items moving forward, especially after the last couple uh, stimulus packages and um, Biden indicating that he would like to do another one once uh, he gets in um, or takes oath of office. But then there is an acknowledgement that, you know, this is a very important issue and it is hugely impactful um, to not only, you know, medical professionals who may not have been able to go in, but all sorts of workers, um, depending on what your occupation is. So, you know, I think it's something that maybe, um, you know, have to think outside the box a little bit from what's already been out there in terms of how you would go about doing something or maybe you try um you know some pilot programs or experiment programs to see how how those work before you go go large so not necessarily a hundred day goal but but maybe a a medium term goal so on that on a similar domain of of the the pediatric and neonatology workforce. Um, 
the our our TCAN group has also made advocacy a, a real priority. And and um, aside from what they've the excellent work they've done on um, patient facing uh, advocacy. There's also a, a, an issue that's specifically relevant early in, in career for the pediatric workforce, and that's the pediatric subspecialty loan repayment um, program. I know this is a major focus of the Academy's um, efforts um, and, and probably will be in the next administration. Uh, average med school debt is, is north of $200,000. How are um, younger neonatologists planning on engaging in this issue, Ashley, and, and what other advocacy priorities would, would TCAN members want to see um, in, in those four years? Yeah, you know, this is a huge problem. A lot of people are aware that the exact average debt is actually 240000 hmm. So I'm average. Uh, I don't think that's a good situation ever. And it's, again, not a good situation when you're talking about debt. Um, it's a struggle. A lot of uh, TCAN members are really having a hard time. And it makes a difference in where we choose to take a job, you know, for everybody who's out there in the job search process right now. Um, and that impacts the care that babies and families have access to because it's a real issue. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, you know, Lily talked about the Australia vacation example about having authorization different from appropriations. So back in 2014, the subspecialty loan repayment act was actually authorized as part of the affordable care act. Um, but it expired in 2014 without it ever actually being funded. So it goes to show that you can say something is a great idea, but then if you don't put the dollars behind it, then nothing really happens with it. So um, the AAP and the section advocacy committee and a lot of other groups have been working really hard since then to get the subspecialty loan repayment reauthorized. Um, and this year, the CARES Act actually did that, which the CARES Act for people who, you know, have been following along was a COVID piece of legislation, but it included pediatric subspecialty loan repayment and authorized it for five years. But you know, we could get stuck in that same situation where someone says, oh, this is a great idea. We approve it, but then we never actually get it funded. So this is going to be a big push and focus from TCAN and the section in general in the coming year. And there will definitely be opportunities um, for coordinated action and reaching out to your representatives. But, you know, the first step is just knowing that it exists. So for anybody who's listening, you know, tell your friend, tell another fellow, tell another early career neo. Um, it's $35,000 of loan repayment funds per year for three years. So we're talking about a hundred grand. Like you could cut your loans in half that are due if you're average like me and have somewhere around a quarter of a million loans. So there's a lot that's going to come. It's definitely going to be a big focus. We need people. We need TCAN members to call your senators, tell them how much debt you're in, tell them about you know how it's a struggle for you in terms of choosing where you practice and that there are pockets of the country that are underserved and don't have access to the same level of care just because the loan burden is a huge deterrent for people to take jobs in certain areas. Mm. And, you know, it's just the way it is. It's unfortunate. None of us, none of us want it to be that way. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to buy a house, you got to live, got to have kids, which is mm. things that we're all doing in the TCAN era. So, well, 
you you've definitely underlined that connection between a, a, a health policy intervention for the pediatric workforce and its impact on on patients. And we, we know that the distribution of neonatologists is a is a huge problem in the in the United States, with uh, some metropolitan areas being highly um, served and, and other areas not. What, what's the do you, do you have a behind the scenes uh, insider perspective, <laughs> Pat, on on uh, what's happening with with uh, that legislation? Like I said, it's been it's been authorized. No, it came out of the, the ACA and then didn't get funded and as Ashley said, it just got reauthorized. So um, one of the things, you know, unfortunately the timing of the authorization, um, this past uh, appropriation cycle um, kind of hurt because um, even though we just finished uh, the appropriations bill, um, by the time that uh, you know, appropriations requests were made and everything like that, it hadn't yet been reauthorized. So when they were making their decisions early on, it still hadn't been reauthorized. So it's always better for a program to have authorization um, uh, um, to get funding for it. Um, and so I think, you know, I think we just have to do, uh, you know, this year is going to be, as James said, a full court press just to make sure that um, members uh, know the need, know it is, has been um, reauthorized, um, why, the, why it's important, and, um, you know, really, um, you know, do like specific targeting of specific members um, and get as many uh, voices as we can to actually support this in the 2022 uh, appropriation cycle. John, this is... This is Shuttle. I just want to make two two points. Um, and again, Pat, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I've gone to the Hill and to my congressional offices to, to advocate on behalf of this program, one of the things that we are constantly running up against is this ingrained bias that a lot of uh, congressional staffers have about subspecialty physicians actually making more money than primary care physicians. And while that is very true in the adult world, and the data suggests is true for neonatology, um, we really need to make a strong point that that is not the case in a lot of pediatric subspecialties. Um, they tend to think that if you're not a primary care physician, you're a cardiologist or an adult cardiologist. Um, and that has been one of the sort of ingrained um, biases or things that we've had to run um, sort of up against. The other thing is when I talk about this issue with you know, colleagues at, at meetings back when we actually had in-person meetings, um, you hear a lot of mid-career physicians saying, you know, this doesn't apply to me, I've paid off my loans, or, um, or uh, well-established career neonatologists saying, you know, I've either paid off my loans or I was lucky enough to graduate you know, debt-free debt at that time. But people need to remember that this is the pipeline for our future workforce. And in so much as that is occurring, it affects all of us, right? We know that early career neonatologists are making career decisions based on salary more than they ever have before. And that means that the pipeline for future potential neonatal researchers or future neonatal academic physicians could be compromised as tend to consider private practice jobs over 
academic positions outside of major cities, um, particularly because of the debt burden. So subspecialty loan repayment was, was the focus of uh, the first subspecialty day of action. And uh, that's an easy way for busy neonatologists to engage and use their voices because templates and links were provided. And in our section, we came up with a template letter just for neonatologists and how to support that. And while this may not necessarily impact us or our generation, um, as much, we need our endocrinologists and our infectious disease experts and our nephrologists to be able to do our jobs. Uh, we also need to be able to hire people so that some of us can actually retire sometimes. So that pipeline issue is critically important. Well, Lily, uh, you're not going to be retiring for the next uh, couple of years because you're going to be at the helm of the section uh, when we when we address many of the topics that we brought up um, today. So um, you and, and others have, have certainly made um, advocacy a major domain in the section's strategic plan. Um, you've been, you know, with, with Shettle have been, and, and Ashley have been coordinating the work of the advocacy committee. So going forward for the next couple of years, how should neonatologists um, consider getting more involved in either getting training for advocacy or becoming more familiar with these issues? What are your, what are your concrete thoughts about, about how, to, how, to make, how to operationalize that engagement? Well, advocacy has been a domain of the section strategic plan only for about four or five years, around the time that you were starting your chair term of the section. And uh, so we now have a formal advocacy committee that just met in its fully, full form um, a week or so ago. Um, the intent of the advocacy committee is for um, to develop a way for neonatologists who all have busy full-time jobs to be effective and efficient in sharing their unique expertise and their perspectives to improve policy for babies and families, and also to coordinate the wide-ranging advocacy interests of our special interest groups. This has become more and more evident as a, a passion of many of our section members. We want to educate about personal advocacy skills through things like the advocacy conference, through workshops that we posted and plan to host at our national meetings, and in developing training curricula for neonatal trainees. We want to provide guidance on how to navigate institutional policies on speaking out. You may work for a hospital that doesn't want their name attached when you write a letter to your member of Congress. Um, so understanding the nuances of those rules is really important and sort of foreign to many of us who are just getting started. We want to provide timely information about legislative issues that are before Congress specific to us as neonatologists. In fact, the um, the transition document and the, the elements, the 150 or 160 elements and recommendations for the Biden administration has been called by Shettle to list only the neonatology relevant transition issues. So we wanted to do focus on things like that to make it easy for neonatologists to speak up. We want to provide templates for communication, links for quick action, to really put it in the way of your work so that it's effortless to use your voice and the authority you have as an expert in neonatal care. We are building our listserv, our website page, and messages to the membership. 
So what we want to do is enable every neonatologist to easily use the voice that they have earned through years of study and hard work to be effective on a broader, as John said in the introduction, on a broader scale than just taking care of your patients one at a time. This has been just su such a, a rich discussion and, and I think we'll all look forward um, to future uh, podcasts to drill down on any one of these topics. But what, um, un until then, what uh, are your, your final thoughts to, to leave our members with um, in, in respect to the concrete aspects of advocacy or, or how they should be uh, engaging in this process of, of moving the levers of, of government? Um, we'll start with you, James. Sure. Uh, I, I would leave you with two sort of parting thoughts. Um, one is, of course, use us as a resource. AAP has a huge uh, advocacy staff on both the federal and the state level. Uh, we're here to serve our members. Uh, so please reach out to us. Consider coming to the advocacy conference. Uh, consider getting involved. Um, the second thing I'll say is uh, don't, don't assume that if you're not engaged in advocacy, somebody else will do it. Uh, because uh, if you make that assumption, then um, then somebody else is going to be advocating, and their priorities are going to take precedence over yours. So so please get involved. Um, it's really important for your members of Congress to hear from you. If they're not hearing from you, um, they're not hearing about the importance of policies for your patients. Don't forget that you, that pediatricians, neonatologists, you are all experts in what you do. Um, and when you are, uh, <clears throat> you are phenomenal advocates, even if you, if you don't think if you've never done it before, you're afraid that, uh, you know, I, I've never gone to the Hill or I've never written a letter or I've never picked up the phone and call. Don't let that stop you from doing it in the, in the future. Um, especially if you're very passionate about a particular issue or topic, um, you know, you like I said, you are an expert in child health. You know it's good for children. Um, you know it's good for families. And don't hesitate to use that voice um, to 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 d demonstrate that. And you don't need to know every detail of every issue. <laughs> you don't have to know what line ten and page twelve of of a bill says or what it means. Um, you just need to convey the, the importance of the issue and why it matters. And you can always refer uh, the staff or whoever you're talking to back to us um, to help uh, with the, the details or anything like that, um, that uh, you may not remember at the top of your head while you're in a conversation. Super, thank you. Um, Ashley, any thoughts? I think my biggest thought would be you are enough. You have the knowledge. You have the expertise. You can do it. Don't be afraid. Jump in. And if you are ever needing a, a buddy or somebody to reach out to, then please don't hesitate to reach out to the section advocacy committee. We even have two TCAN representatives, myself and Allie Sloan from Kentucky. So we would be more than happy to grab your hand and either drag you along or let us uh, be followed, following in your footsteps on an issue that you're really passionate about. So please engage and, and join us. Great. Shuttle. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, many years ago, the Academy created a button 
that a lot of pediatricians wore at one of the legislative conferences that said, I speak for children. It was very poignant, I think, at one of the Scottsdale meetings that the buttons that were distributed said, we speak for babies. And while it's very clear that all pediatricians are finely attuned to the issues of early childhood and to infancy, we really are the voice for those children. Um, and it's very important for us to say that when it comes to issues that relate to not just babies, but the mothers, that we are active and that we are engaged and that we understand that we are the probably the loudest subspecialty voice that will speak for them. And that goes back to the comments that if we're not doing the talking, someone else is. Um, and they might not be saying what we want our legislative officials to hear. Last word to you, Lily, as the chair. So I have three, three tips for people. One is that when you're talking to your members of Congress, remember that they're trying to listen to people talking about agriculture and energy and defense and the economy and everything else. So I really highly recommend that you keep your message simple, including your data. Um, the bullet points are gonna be um, important. Um, and also, it's not a one-time deal um, advocacy. So I think it's key to think that you're on a journey to build a relationship with your representative. And so each visit or each letter or email is part of that, but the relationship is developed so that when you call them up, someday they're gonna say, oh, Shuttle or oh, John, hi, how are you doing? And they know who you are and they, you have your credibility built by that. And also when you do have interactions, follow up after the visit. So um, the, the last thing I wanna say is there's lots of help for you getting started on what will feel foreign at first, but you have such credibility. Mark Del Monte always talks about how credible we are. We're not quite as credible as nurses, but as pediatricians, people listen to us. And so it's really up to us to use that voice and that credibility. Well, this has been inspiring and informative and practical, which uh, hardly ever coincide <laughs> in what we do. So um, thank you to all of you. And I, I look forward not only to the great work that you're doing um, and will do, but also to talking again. Well, thank you very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for highlighting this important topic. You've been listening to Cross Section, a podcast of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on neonatal perinatal medicine. This week with guests James Baumberger, Patrick Johnson, Ashley Luck, Lily Liu, and Shettle Shaw. This podcast was recorded in late 2020, so all references to next year refer to 2021. Thanks for tuning in.